Welcome to the Health and Wellness Show, everybody. Today is Friday, June 2nd, 2017. My name is Jonathan. I'll be your host for today. Uh, joining me in our virtual studio from all over the planet, we have Erica, Elliot, Gabby, Doug, and Tiffany. Hey, guys. Hi. Hello. 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 Good full crew today. It's awesome. Welcome back, yes. Jonathan. Thank you. <laughs> and Gabby. Thank you very much. Yeah. I'm I'm back from the uh, from the wilds of Tibet, and I have a lot of wisdom to share with you guys. Oh, cool. <laughs> I'm kidding. I'm kidding. <laughs> Uh, no, uh, today our topic is, uh, keeping it real about the pill. <laughs> so we're going to get into some details about birth control, uh, and just, just what exactly are some of the truths, uh, and the misinformation around birth control. Um, you know, it was in, introduced around 1960, uh, and now over a hundred million women worldwide, uh, use, uh, birth control, um, it, specifically the pill form. Um, you know, it's widely hailed as a landmark for feminism and uh, reproductive freedom. But there is also a dark side to this, a pharmacological dark side. And that's what we want to talk about that, uh, you know, claiming the, the freedom of choice over your body with this specific chemical is not quite what you think it is. I, th- I think that's, mm-hmm. it's not quite the bastion of, of free will and choice that we think it is. Um, so I guess let's, uh, get started on just some of the uh, the very basic, uh, you know, truths about birth control. And I guess uh, I should turn this over to the, the women of our show because I'm sadly inexperienced in this area. <laughs> <laughs> what, uh, Gabby, from a medical perspective, do you want to just run us through what exactly it does the birth control pill do? Like, why does it stop babies from happening? It basically stops cold in its track. The release of um, ovulation, you know, by, you know, it's basically artificial hormones. And when you give artificial hormones, then the natural cycle is prevented from occurring. So there's no egg to fertilize. And uh, that's pretty much it, I guess. Mm. Sure. And I think the, uh, with the dangerous side of this, right, that we want to focus on is that, uh, upsetting the natural hormonal balance. Exactly. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I'm all for no. reproductive freedom and not having a baby if you don't want to have a baby. But the fact that we have these hormonal birth control pills, it seems like after nearly 70 years, there would have been something new some different way to attain this reproductive freedom, but all we have yeah. is this old science that the pill yeah. is based on. Yeah. yeah. And they have made new, new, newer things and actually works. Uh, they're more dangerous than the old stuff. Like they have made implants that you can inject in your muscle Nor tissue. Or <laughs> yeah. Or rings that you can implant in your vagina or, <laughs> What else? Uh, Pastures. <laughs> the Nova Ring. Yeah. And, uh, the Depo Vera. Those are yeah. very popular because. We got yeah. patches, we got shots, we got rings, we have implantable devices. Yeah. And, yes. Yeah, there's the. Uh, the- Condoms. Yes. <laughs> and abstinence. The- <laughs> yeah, there's that too. But would it be fair uh, to say that the um, that the the kind of the technology behind it has not really changed that much? I mean, essentially, they're just like boosting hormones with like 
like artificial hormones like that that's kind of you know they might have like fiddled with the recipe a little bit here and there but in 50 years they haven't really like you know the, i mean the, the whole implantable like microchip thing which is really scary but it, it when i was reading about it, i was kind of like oh i wonder what the hell this does and really it's it's just like a way of kind of slowly releasing these hormones over the course of like yeah. six years or something crazy like that so i mean it really when it comes right down to it they haven't really discovered anything new as for how they can go about doing this it's really just the same thing in a different package mm-hmm. yeah exactly and just to put yeah. an example there's the nova ring by merck my uh, favorite pharmaceutical company <laughs> and uh, <laughs> mine's vaginal johnson yeah, or GlaxoMithKline. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's basically a vaginal ring, and it actually carries a 90% greater risk of thrombosis in the veins than birth control mm-hmm. pills with earlier huh. generations of progesterone. Okay. 90%. Wow. Yeah. Well, when you consider the fact, too, that, you know, in the U.S., there's more than 3 million unwanted pregnancies that happen Every year, and that's with a large percent of of women using contraceptive methods. Yeah, yeah, it doesn't doesn't always work. I'm anecdotally aware of of cases where it's directly been applied and, and not worked. Uh, but I can attest to the uh, the um, <clears throat> you know unwanted pregnancies to just being in uh, where I live is like a rural area of the United States, and it's it's a big um, part of the community is uh, young single mothers, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. And I, I think a lot of that is, is just surprise pregnancies that happen. I think yeah. you could say that about most rural communities in the United States. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Well, even urban communities. What was interesting in yeah. doing some of the research um, for our listeners who may be interested, there's a, a website called the pill that kills. And uh, it basically talked about like a timeline of the history of contraception. And of course, it started in like 1873, where U.S. Congress passed the Comstock Law, which uh, prohibited the the distribution of obscene material in the U.S. through the mail. And it identified contraceptive, contraceptives as obscene. <laughs> and, um, and then in 1912... Uh, a radical feminist, her name was Margaret Sagner. She con- conceives of a magic pill contraceptive, and she later fi- founded the American Birth Control League, which eventually became Planned Parenthood. Um, she, uh, in 1951, obtained a grant from uh, Dr. Gregory Pincus, a biologist, to research hormonal contraceptives, but the funding soon runs out. And Pincus actually shocked the public by his research into in vitro fertilization with rabbits. Hmm. Um, so he's kind of working on both sides of the both Yeah, sides of the well, game. when they first started researching the pill, they were claimed that they were researching infertility because hmm. it was kind of a taboo area with the churches and, you know, being very abstinent-based. Um, in 1955, Pincus presents his findings about this magic pill preventing ovulation, and the Planned Parenthood League gives conferences in Tokyo and Japan, and the uh, 
basically the news that the birth control pill has been developed begins to spread amongst scientists. It's not until 1956 that large-scale human trials begin. And this was really disturbing. They did trials on women in Puerto Rico, and they did that because the location was a large pool of poor, uneducated women who could be easily monitored. The local Mm -hmm. doctor in charge of the study tells Pincus that the pill causes too many side effects and reactions to be considered generally acceptable. However, Pincus dismisses the findings. They don't investigate the side effects or the cause of three women who died during the trials. In 1957, the FDA approves the usage of the pill to treat severe menstrual disorders and requires that its packaging include a warning that it will prevent ovulation. And this was the kicker. In 1960, the pharmaceutical company G.D. Searle obtains FDA approval to sell the pill as a contraceptive despite the FDA's initial misgivings about its long-term safety. It becomes the first FDA-approved drug to be given to healthy patients for long-term use and for social purposes. Wow. So they knew since the 1950s that there was problems with it. Well, um... It actually goes back before the 1950s, um, and if you so, if you look at the the general contraceptive pills available, you have different types. So you have um, the ones that are purely estrogen, and then you have also the ones that are estrogen and progesterone or synthetic progesterone. Um, and so, researchers who discovered, kind of discovered and studied estrogen. Um, they, estrogen was never actually known as estrogen. It was, it had a completely different name. It was called adipin. So (laughs) you can guess from the name, it it was associated with fat tissue and everything that's associated with being fat. Um, it it was never known as the female hormone. Um, it it was only fairly recently, uh, it was in the late 1940s, I think, that they, that they provided some, questionable correlation between estrogen and being female but the fact is is that estrogen is present in both males and females um anyway so the 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 livestock industry took note of this and um they started using it to induce miscarriages um in their animals and they also uh, found that it could in- increase the fat mass uh, if you if you if you fed it to the animals. And so, naturally, to increase the profit, you you would want to increase the uh, the weight of your product. And so, they they fed them estrogen forming foods and things like vegetable oils um, to increase the fat of the animal to make more profit. So it's it's been kind of understood that estrogen or or adipin, as it was called, uh, does have many negative side effects. But this information was seemingly suppressed. Mm-hmm. Well, I know That's that um, when the pill first kind of came onto the market, one of the side effects was weight gain. But apparently with the more modern ones, and I guess they've lowered the, the dosage and stuff, they say that, oh, it's not really an issue anymore except in like the odd person. And, you know, if that if that happens to be you, then just uh, talk to your doctor about getting a different pill. You know, don't practice a different form of birth control. Just get a different pill. 
Well, maybe, Gabby, you can explain a little bit. From my understanding, and I have taken the pill, it was many years ago, but does it essentially trick your body into thinking you're pregnant? I mean, it seems like the weight gain, the mood swings, the loss of sexual libido, all these things that are side effects. They all happen in women who are pregnant. Yes. <laughs> and then there are several, there are combinations too. Like there's the those that have, uh, have only estrogen, estrogen and progesterone, like Elliot was saying. Some contain only progesterone. And then from all those hormones, there are several generations. And as far as I understand, we are right now on the fourth generation. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And as I was saying, like the Nuva Ring, for example, which has 90% more chance of creating blood clots. It's, uh, I think, third or fourth generation. And uh, the first generation was not that malignant, so to speak. But it mm-hmm. does have more side effects. And, uh, and yeah, I think most right now on the market are either progesterone or a combination of both, of estrogen and progesterone. <coughs> uh, in, in response to what you're saying, Erica, it kind of, it basically does trick your body into thinking that you're pregnant. Um, so the progesterone and the estrogen, um, they suppress two hormones from the pituitary gland. Uh, one is called follicle stimulating hormone, and the other one is called luteinizing hormone. So they're the hormones that kick into action when you that they they basically trigger the growth of an egg. Whereas when you have high estrogen and high progesterone, from what I understand, I think it's correct that that basically um, tricks your body into thinking that you 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 are pregnant. Mm-hmm. Elliot, I don't want to put you too much on the spot, but uh, would you mind talking a little bit about the mitochondria angle and what birth control does to mitochondria? <laughs> uh, yeah. Okay. Right. So there's been lots of uh, – I'll try and speak slowly on this. There's a, quite a lot of information about it, so I'll – I'll try and explain it in the best way possible, but there's lots of different effects uh, that come into play here. That in recent years, there's been um, there's been a lot of sort of adverse symptoms that have been reported by women who take the the, um, the contraceptive pill, and um, especially the ones that contain estrogen. So it, it all started when there were. Um, there's an acknowledgement that estrogen plays a role in the menstrual cycle um, and therefore it was labeled as the female hormone. So as I said before, um, estrogen is not technically a female hormone um, it, as it is present in both males and females, although it is more predominant in males. Um, the, the pioneer of stress physiology, his name was Hans Selye. Um, can you hear me? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So his name was Hans Selye, and he's the guy who basically um, came up with the whole idea of, or came up with the research that showed that that chronic stress um, has a negative effect on the body. So everything that we now understand about stress um, kind of really stems from his work. Um, And so he actually discovered in his experiments when he was first trying to learn about the stress response 
was that estrogen mimics um, the shock phase of stress. So he classified estrogen as a stress hormone. He didn't Mm. believe that it was in any way beneficial um, in high doses. um, And he thought that it was only safe when it is balanced out by the right and proper hormones. So that is testosterone and mainly progesterone. So you have progesterone, which which really counteracts the negative effects and suppresses the estrogen. So when estrogen is allowed to um, sort of get into a state where it's chronically released and it's not balanced out by these other protective substances, uh, it can cause a lot of different effects. Um, And so, first of all, it's interesting to note that most of the carcinogenic substances that we hear about and we talk about on this show, um, we know that they're carcinogenic, but one of the main mechanisms by which they um, act in a carcinogenic fashion is by promoting estrogen. So in other words, they're estrogenic. So we've spoke about glyphosate, the um, the infamous pesticide or herbicide produced by Monsanto. So glyphosate is estrogenic. Similarly, BPA is estrogenic and even soot from coal is estrogenic. Um, And so if you look at the way that estrogen affects the cell, you can start to understand how how so many people have reported so many adverse effects. Um, Right. So. Before we go into exactly how estrogen affects the cell, it's good to get an idea about how how someone can get an excess of, of estrogen in the first place. So it happens a lot if people are taking the pill. Uh, but what's worth noting is that even for the men, it, it can happen in any state. You don't have to be taking a contraceptive pill. Estrogen is common in almost every single illness, okay, on, on the, in the tissue level. Okay, so let's just say um, someone undergoes a stress, stress response. Okay, and if this is chronic, what happens is, is you release cortisol and you release adrenaline. So cortisol breaks down the muscle tissue to provide glucose to the cell for energy. Adrenaline also breaks down the fat tissue. Now, most people nowadays, um, when you break down fat, you will release polyunsaturated fatty acids. That's because uh, our diet has changed in the last sort of 100 years, um, and we've started consuming a lot of vegetable oils. So the vegetable oils, um, they are polyunsaturated, and what happens is is we start to accumulate them in our fat cells and in our tissues. So when you undergo any stressor for a prolonged period of time, you deplete glycogen, and you start releasing this fat into the... um, Basically, you start releasing this fat so that it can be used for energy. So the interesting thing is that when polyunsaturated fats are metabolized, they activate an enzyme called aromatase. Okay, so aromatase can be found in all sorts of tissues of the body. And this enzyme basically converts male steroid hormones, which are present in females as well. So testosterone, dehydrotestosterone, DHEA. It converts these to estrogen. Okay. Now, um, there's another enzyme which is called beta glucuronidase. So it can be produced in tissues, but it, it can also be produced by gut bacteria. 
So what this substance does is it basically, um, you've got a system in your liver. It's a detoxification system and it's called glucuronidation. So beta-glucuronidase, or no, glucuronidation, what it does is it basically binds with all the toxins, all the drugs, and um, and estrogen as well, because you need to detoxify estrogen. And so it binds with it, and so it can be passed through into the stool. But when you've got elevated levels of beta-glucuronidase, for whatever reason, um, this inactivates this um, detoxification system. And so it allows the estrogen to recirculate into the body. Um, so whether it's through the aromatase system or the beta-glucuronidase system, um, this can, or even just taking the contraceptive pill or consuming plastics, or for whatever reason, this leads to an excess of estrogen in the system. Um, and I know this probably doesn't seem related, or it's kind of going off track, but it's kind of important to understand. Um, so... When you've got too much estrogen, what this does is it desensitizes the body to, to the action of cortisol. Um, and so you often get an increase of cortisol um, to be able to perform its function um, in relation to what it was before. Um, and so estrogen, this leads, estrogen also leads to the formation of more estrogen <laughs> so basically all you need to know is that when you've got estrogen it basically activates this positive feedback where you just pro keep producing more estrogen more cortisol and more adrenaline uh, it's it's very much linked in with the with the whole stress response um, and so estrogen if you look at how it affects the brain first of all um, it's an excitotoxin so biochemical or um, yeah, biochemically speaking, it doesn't act that much different to cocaine. Um, it, it produces glutamate toxicity. So you've got two systems in the brain. You've got GABA and you've got glutamate. So glutamate is the thing that makes you feel really alive. GABA is the thing that makes you feel sleepy and relaxed. So when you've got estrogen in the brain, um, it produces this, this exciting state. Okay, but it also kills brain cells in the same at the same time. And so this is interesting because you'll often speak to women. And I've spoken to a couple of people now who've said that when when they started taking the estrogen um, pill, they um, they felt really good at first. But then they started to get massive mood swings and they felt like they they developed anxiety. They developed all of these sort of psychological issues um that can really be explained partly at least by um by this excitotoxic effect in the brain um so apart from affecting the brain in that way it also suppresses the thyroid function so because it promotes the hypothalamic pituitary axis that the, basically the system that releases cortisol and adrenaline um whenever there is high cortisol and adrenaline there is generally low thyroid function and so estrogen um it inhibits the thyroid gland directly um, but it also acts via the stress stress response to um, to decrease the thyroid function. So it ultimately lowers your metabolism. It lowers the rate at which you can um, you can burn energy for fuel. Um, and so, other than that, um, these are just sort of higher level mechanisms. But <laughs> there's there's another interesting thing that is worth pointing out before we go to the level of the mitochondria um, is that it activates an enzyme called tryptophan hydroxylase. So this enzyme basically converts dietary tryptophan, which is an amino acid that you find in meat, 
Uh, it converts tryptophan to serotonin. And so <laughs> in most health circles, um, even alternative health circles, there's this idea that serotonin is this happy hormone that's generally a really great thing. Um, but I think that's actually quite questionable. Um, serotonin, if you look at if you look on PubMed or any sort of research journal online, you will see that serotonin is or high levels of serotonin are intimately linked to, to many, many different pathologies. Um, if you look at autism, autism, the brains of autistic people generally have a much higher level of serotonin. Similarly, if you look at Crohn's disease, um, you will see that there are, I mean, Crohn's disease is, it features massive, massive levels of serotonin in the gut. Um, so serotonin has some interesting effects, but that's probably a topic for a whole nother show. I'm just, I'm just saying it because it's interesting that estrogen does activate this response. Um, but what it also does is it activates histamine. Um, and so histamine and serotonin in response to estrogen, they increase vascular leakiness. So this allows water to get into the tissues. It also allows water to get into the cell. It causes cell edema, basically swelling of the cell. And um, this allows calcium to, to influx into the cell as well. So if you know anything about calcium, calcium is a massively excitatory substance. Um, <clears throat> Generally, if this happens for prolonged periods of time, it, it can lead to some sort of pathology. Um, but other than that, sorry, <laughs> <laughs> my light is not working. <laughs> there we go. That's good. So, um, yeah. Right. OK. One second. I've got lots of notes on this. Well, an excess so, of estrogen is bad news all around, whether you're a male <laughs> or woman. Oh, God, yeah. I mean, okay, so here's, here's some basic facts about estrogen. And this is stuff that is published out there, but it's stuff that doctors either don't know or pharmaceutical companies are not telling us. Um, so the effects of estrogen include in interference with oxidative metabolism, Formation of lipofuscin, which is the age pigment. Retention of iron. Production of free radicals and lipid peroxides. Promotion of excitotoxicity and death of nerve cells. Impaired learning ability. Increased tendency to form blood clots and to have vascular spasms. Increased autoimmunity and atrophy of the thymus. Elevated prolactin. Atrophy of the skin. Increased susceptibility to a great variety of cancers, lowered temperature, lowered serum albumin, increased tendency toward edema, and many of the features of shock. Okay, so <laughs> loads of things that a woman will go to the doctor for, for instance, PMS, they will be prescribed an estrogen-containing pill because supposedly a lot of these pathologies are, um, are a lack of estrogen. But if we actually look at how these things are treated you can treat them with antihistamine drugs now the fact about antihistamines is that they're also anti-estrogen so if pms is a, is is a pathology that has too much estrogen then why is it that taking an anti-estrogenic substance can help to treat it it doesn't really make sense and that's because there is a whole lot of money in the estrogen industry you know and, and these guys are basically trying to push this stuff as if it's this really good thing but I personally am quite confident that any excess of estrogen 
I mean, <laughs> we can go into cancer. If you want to like go into the mitochondrial aspect of it, I mean, excess is the effect that estrogen has on the mitochondria is synonymous with cancer. It's exactly the same thing as cancer. It's the inability to use oxygen properly. So it's a version back to primitive metabolism. So like basically, if you look at a tissue, when there's excess estrogen, what it does is it causes, I'll try to slow down, <laughs> but what it does is it causes something called hypoxia. Okay. Hypoxia means that oxygen cannot reach the tissue. So all you need to know is that for a cell to be able to produce energy, it needs oxygen. If it doesn't have oxygen, then it's, it's only got one option. And that option is basically to revert to this really primitive stage of metabolism, which is called glycolysis. Okay, this is like a temporary measure. And this should this should not be done for long periods of time. Um, so when when estrogen like it, it causes this oxygen wastage it's like a rapid use of oxygen and it, it means that there's the oxygen can't get to any other tissues okay so what happens when a cell doesn't have oxygen as i said it reverts to this primitive state of metabolism but as a byproduct of that primitive metabolism is lactic acid so when you get a buildup of lactic acid um this this can essentially trigger a chain of events that stimulates blood vessel formation, um, stimulates angiogenesis, and is essentially equivalent to cancer. There was a guy called Victor Warburg, uh, Otto Warburg who showed that cancer was the cell's inability to use oxygen. So if it can't use oxygen or if it's deprived of oxygen for too long, it will produce lactic acid and you will get a perpetual state of growth. It can no longer differentiate because differentiation is a higher function. It, it needs more energy to do so. So the only thing a cancer cell can do is grow because it doesn't have enough energy to do anything else. So cancer isn't like this crazy thing that we need to kill it's it's the only way that our cells are able to survive in that environment and the way that this links back to estrogen is because estrogen can directly cause this state this this cancer state metabolism um and so when you look at all of the 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 to about how how the the um the contraceptive pill can can lead to all of these problems when you go right down to the biochemistry of it it's really quite simple because it deprives the cell of oxygen it is possibly one of the worst things that a cell can be exposed to for any prolonged period of time and then the body's natural defense against this is progesterone so uh, necrosis in in um in in studies they found that necrosis and and cancer can be formed by giving large amounts of estrogen to an animal but then progesterone can reverse the effect um and so progesterone is like the the natural anti-stress factor um Ray, dr ray pete has spoken a lot about this and i know there's lots of other doctors um in the alter alternative health community who, who have also spoken about this and there's a lot of uh, a lot of things that can cause someone to not be able to produce enough progesterone to balance the effects of estrogen. Uh, namely, one of those is stress or some kind of nutrient deficiency. Um, but generally, like if, if estrogen is left unchecked, um, and this is either through the contraceptive pill or um, or 
any anything really exposure to plastics or uh, polyunsaturated fats i mean they are a massive source of estrogen if anything sort of allows estrogen to get to this state then there's going to be trouble at the cellular level and and you're going to get ill in in some way um just to add on to that um Estrogen also activates the formation of nitric oxide. So just to briefly touch on nitric oxide, uh, it's a useful thing in small doses. But when you have chronically elevated nitric oxide, it has this uncanny ability to bind to the mitochondria and stop it from working. So basically what that means is that you can't produce energy. Your cell is going to die or something bad is going to happen in really simple terms. <laughs> um, so, yeah, that's what it does to the mitochondria, <laughs> if that makes any sense. <laughs> yeah, no, I think we can just cut the show right there. You just <laughs> <laughs> Well, one of the commenters in the chat actually said something that I was thinking as you were explaining that, Elliot, and that's, he said that's why it explains why so many of these pills increase cancer risk. I mean, if you think yeah. about it, like if if estrogen is basically directly tied to, um, you know, causing this primitive energy metabolism state, and that is what kind of leads to the pro- proliferation of cancer, then the fact that people are popping these pills of estrogen, you know, it makes sense that you see things like you know, huge increases in like breast cancer, um, cervical cancer, uh, liver cancer. Like it just it, it all cancer. makes a lot of sense. Ovarian cancer. Yeah. Well, if, well, if you think about the information that estrogen actually contains within it, like I try to see hormones as little sort of signalers, information carriers, okay? So estrogen is useful in some contexts. And I mean, it's completely necessary for for every single human being. Like for instance, um, when you when you cut your finger, you will have an increase of estrogen in that area. And that is because it has the effect of growth. You need to grow new collagen. You need to grow. You need to build up that scab to be able to protect your finger and basically recover from the recover from the trauma. Um, and that's what estrogen's really good at. It's just when there's no natural factors to balance out that response. That's when you have this chronic growth phase. And this this essentially, I mean, this can be implicated in so many different diseases. I think it's uh, very interesting, too, that uh, a while ago when women went through menopause or premenopause, uh, it was popular to supplement with estrogen pills, you know, because mm-hmm. that, you know, put a stop to all the symptoms and it was supposedly rejuvenating, which is a joke considering all what Elliot has said. And then they discovered that, no, oops, there's risk for all these adverse effects and they have to backtrack, you know, and remove them, you know, stop the indication for that. But even though that happened, it's still accepted as a contraceptive method. Whatever happened to younger women? What, what? <laughs> you know, are we top liver? <laughs> <You know? laughs> well, basically uh, taking the pill is hormone therapy. Or hormone yeah. replacement therapy, and they're giving it out to girls in middle schools as yeah. young as 11 to 13 years old. Like in the U.S. and the U.K., they're passing them out in school clinics. And yeah. technically, in some of these school clinics, you need parental permission. But really, that permission is just for you to receive health care services. 
It doesn't specifically say that, yes, we're going to give your daughter birth control pills, but whatever she asks for when she's in that clinic, she can get because a parent already signed the, the permission slip for that. Yeah. Well, in the U.S. Yeah. too, Planned Parenthood, the age of consent without permission from the parents mm-hmm. is 14. Yeah, on the state level, you can go into any Planned Parenthood clinic and get whatever kind of birth control you want or the doctor recommends for you. Mm-hmm. Like there was one school in Tulsa where they actually <clears throat> drove girls to a clinic and they could get whatever they wanted. One girl came home with a, a Norplant device implanted into her arm and her mother did not give her permission for that. Yeah. I remember when I was in school, um, there was quite a lot of girls who were, when I was like 13 even, they were um, they were on the pill, and that was like a constant thing. And it wasn't because they were sexually active, uh, according to them. Uh, it was it was because they suffered from things like PMS or just natural uh, sort of uh, things that you come across that could probably be explained by other things like uh, you know allergies or something like that. Diet, but mm-hmm. yeah, or diet. Or puberty, you know. So basic yeah, things. girls are given those to regulate their periods. Like when I first started my period at 13, I had it every two weeks, and it was awful. But there was no way my mother was going to put me on the pill. I mean, it resolved itself with time. But these yeah. girls are just giving out like candy to these young girls who a lot of them yeah, aren't they, even sexually active at the time that they start the pill. They brainwash the population to the point that if a 12-year-old girl has these problems, oh, no, the pill. I mean, mm-hmm. I, by no means she should endure it. If there's a pill, she must take it, you know. Mm-hmm. Well, it's even going a step further with the <clears throat> the shot. So a lot of, you know, concerns about the pill is remembering to take it every day. So they've gone ahead and created what's called the Depo-Povera shot, and you can read about the side effects on the Internet. Basically, it stops girls from getting their period altogether. So is that a healthy side effect? I mean, and and they kind of sell it and push it like that in Planned Parenthood. Yeah, that, you know, oh, you're 15 and you don't ever want a period again. We'll just get this depo shot. Well, there are pills that are marketed exactly for that reason, like there's, uh, some of the developers, one of their slogans for uh, one of these pills, it was either Yaz or Yasmin. Their slogan was, you don't need a period or menstruation is obsolete. <laughs> so uh, yeah. basically their whole marketing gimmick is you can skip having your periods or maybe just have four periods a year. But even without that, like there have been women and I've been one of them. Like if you're taking your pill, you have these certain number of days of active hormone then you have like seven days of dummy pills if you're going on vacation somewhere or you have an important event to go to and you don't want to be on your period during that time you just skip the dummy pills and go on to your next case of birth control pills and you can skip having your period for as long as you want to which is totally unnatural that's that's the fashionable thing right now i think teenagers are like you know why have a period you know it's it's normal now, you know. In my generation, it was completely unacceptable. But right now, that's the normal thing for women to choose. You know, it's crazy. It is crazy, yeah. Like it, you know, something that's like a totally normal biological process. That you know, I think you know we've been socialized in a lot of ways to uh, 
consider it to be nothing more than an inconvenience. But um, I, I just have to wonder like what the long-term consequences are of somebody like just stopping their period altogether. Like just completely being like, you know what? I don't like this. I'm just going to stop. You know, it's like, you know, other biological processes, we can't just arbitrarily decide to stop. I'm just going to shut down my digestion. I don't think I really need it. It's just, it's so bizarre. <laughs> well, that's what, I think one of <clears throat> there's oh, sir. the, oh, sorry. The, well, the, and forgive my ignorance here, but um, <clears throat> the menstrual cycle is the, the sloughing off of the uterine wall, right? Isn't that what happens? Mm-hmm. So I mean, if it's not if that's being for, prevented from happening, is there a process that's being backed up, you know, mm-hmm. or I guess some somewhere in that chain of of processes in the body, is there something that's not happening that over time is going to fail? I guess that's what well. I'm if that happens now, they'll just take your uterus out. It's called a hysterectomy. <laughs> <Right. laughs> yeah. Well, if the lining of the uterus doesn't have to shed, okay, there will be no menstruation. There are no hormonal changes that changes the lining of the uterus itself. But I think more from a structural point of view, there are more implications to that. There are hormones and emotions linked to it. And, you know, historically, menstruation for women, it's a period of higher sensitivity emotions are you know richer or more intense you know and it's a time of cleansing you know traditions of tribes where women are menstruating they will go their own way to meditate to you know it was the natural process of processing life lessons itself you know sure. and uh, <laughs> that's what, what we are obstructing and I was mm. I was going to say that from that point of view, I thought it was also interesting that in 2008, they did a study. They found out that women in the contraceptive pill, you know, often cho- chose um, the wrong partner or what will naturally occur. Mm-hmm. Like it seems like through pheromones, you tend to be attracted to a man that has a slight difference in the genetic um, component of the immune system. So, you know, any baby, you know, will have uh, high resilience, genetic resilience. But it seems that women on the pill, they choose the wrong partner. They choose more people that are compatible with them. So there's less diversity on the genetic input for the immune system. I thought that was like pretty scary, has more implications that, uh, that meets the eye, you know? Yeah. yeah. So that's that was pretty weird too, but another weird thing is that this excess estrogen through these hormonal birth control pills, they switch off the response to oxytocin. So they did a study where they showed these women that were taking the pill pictures of their friends and pictures of their boyfriends or their husbands, and the women that were on the pill, um, their brains lit up more when they saw pictures of their friends and didn't light up when they saw boyfriends or their husbands. So basically, they're saying that the pill interferes with the bonding between couples. And the whole reason that you're taking the pill is really so you can have sex and bond with your partner without worrying about getting pregnant. So it completely ruins the bonding between couples. And it also lowers your libido, which is another reason you're taking a pill. So you don't have to worry about having sex. Well, that's that's really interesting because... um. Because a lot of the pills, even though they say they contain progesterone, the progesterone is not technically progesterone. It's a synthetic progestogen. And this yeah. has actually been shown not only to decrease the effects of natural progesterone, but also increase the effects of testosterone. 
And so you, you see women polycystic ovarian syndrome or, you know, women who grow beards and stuff. Um, I mean, that, that put, puts that in some more context. But what is interesting is that uh, I've, um, I've done some reading on some different forums and people who, who took the pill um, before but then stopped and then started supplementing with natural progesterone, like in its, in its organic form, uh, they actually expressed that they felt much more bonded with their partners um, and, and felt love and gratitude and, and their relationship had increased and their libido had increased and everything. So I thought that was just they were, interesting. And they were less inflamed. <laughs> yeah, I know that. I have tried natural progesterone. And, uh, yes, uh, I felt less inflamed. And uh, that's the other thing I wanted to point out because we, okay, Alex spoke about all these things about progesterone and men will be thinking, oh, that's not my problem because I'm not and will never be and have never been on the pill. Hmm. But... (laughs) 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 With all the xenoestrogens, estrogens that come from outside, that Elliot spoke briefly from plastics, pesticides, you know, and Mm -hmm. all these pollutants, you know, you really can't escape it. It's in the drinking water. It's like it's the the artificial estrogens, the the xenoestrogens are actually like causing all these problems with uh, wildlife, um, particularly in like fish and amphibians that where like, you know, they they don't have a, a proper like they have the sex organs of both male and female or there's males who are actually growing eggs in the testes and like all these other kinds of crazy things. So you think like, you know, if it can affect these animals in this way, it's got to be doing something to us as well. Looks look like uh, it might be affecting humanity with all this gender fluidity movement. Yeah, well, exactly. Yeah, I mean, this is the thing. Our environment is completely estrogenic, and so it comes back to the idea that estrogen is it really a female hormone, or is it more of a really destructive hormone in large quantities? Mm. Because we see so many of these illnesses that can be directly linked to estrogen, and so. You know, in our environment, as I just said, and as we've spoke about, it's it, it's we're constantly exposed to this estrogenic factor, yeah. And so people are, are going to their doctors and being prescribed; they're being diagnosed with estrogen deficiency, like, and then they're being prescribed estrogen. Whereas a lot of the time, or I I I would probably say, you know, ninety nine percent of the time, in all likelihood. There's no estrogen deficiency. It's it's more likely an imbalance. I mean, Dr. Ray Pete has spoken about this a lot, and there's there's loads of other researchers uh, currently talking about it, about the ratio between progesterone and estrogen, and that is one of the things that um, that needs to be sort of balanced. And so uh, many of these different types of um, illnesses that are attributed to estrogen deficiency are actually due to a um, – a, a decreased estrogen progesterone ratio so too much estrogen and not enough progesterone to balance it out and someone could say oh yeah well you know i went for my blood test and my estrogen was fine but the problem is is that it's been shown that blood levels of estrogen do not correlate to tissue levels of estrogen mm-hmm. and that like tissue levels of it exactly it, it's something very difficult to measure and so 
um, you know, just because you've got good blood panels does not mean that you are estrogen deficient. So I'm not saying that estrogen deficiency could not theoretically happen. But what I'm saying is that when you examine all of the factors that we ex- we're exposed to in our lives, the chances of us being estrogen deficient are probably very low. And the fact that estrogen is, is, is a hormone that is only meant to be released in small quantities and at certain times of the month for women um you know kind of brings some more perspective to it and i'd just like to add about progesterone as well it, like your comment gabby about um about the guys thinking oh well you know this doesn't pr- apply to me <laughs> progesterone estrogen these are all women hormones blah, blah 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 well for what it's worth us guys we need progesterone too okay <laughs> and it kind of comes <laughs> back to the whole treatment. like exactly it's a treatment for adrenal fatigue some men have used it for adrenal fatigue you know yeah, this is it, because progesterone, I mean, I, I, I can't remember the exact statistic, but most of it is in the brain. And I I vaguely remember um, a study that showed that there was as much progesterone in men as there were in women, okay, in the brain. Um, and so if you think this is just a woman's hormone, I would, I would try and scrap that idea because progesterone, as, um, as Hans Selye, I think, basically laid it out in the 19 uh can't remember like 60 years ago he basically said that it was the anti-stress hormone okay so for for guys and women alike we all need to focus on balancing our progesterone and estrogen because estrogen is a really bad thing (laughs) i was gonna say something crazy but it's totally normal in the world today but in some countries, you know, you have all these issues that you want to counteract with some natural hormone. You go to the doctor and yes, you could get prescribed all these pills, but you cannot get natural progesterone, not even imported from outside. It will get blocked on the, the dugony mm. <laughs> at the airport. You know, <laughs> it's crazy. It's like, you know, natural stuff that doesn't interfere with your physiology, prohibit it. But artificial stuff that destroys your health, totally permitted. <laughs> yeah, that's the way things are right now, huh? <laughs> <laughs> and on top of the, say, on top of the the xenoestrogens in the environment, there's also the fact that um, when women are taking the pill, um, when it's kind of gone through the body and done its thing, they um, excrete it through the urine. And that ends up in the water table. And so there's yet another exposure to estrogen that we all get exposed to all the time. Especially if you eat fish. <laughs> Especially if you drink water. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> you drink water. The, uh, the water treatment plants in the United States are not equipped to uh, filter out estrogen. Yeah. And they've yeah, said it's too expensive. Special charcoal fil- filter. There's there's something really interesting as well that I just wanted to add. Um, I came across a study that basically showed that excess estrogen caused viruses to be expressed. So dormant viruses in the body, uh, when there was estrogen that was administered, the virus was expressed, whereas progesterone stopped it from being expressed. So there's this idea that in our DNA, in our mitochondrial DNA, it's um, it's taken from or it's it's sort of evolved or been incorporated from uh, viral DNA. 
or bacterial DNA, but there's there's a lot of research talking about how we've got sort of viral SNPs in our own DNA and how um, I don't know whether this is the case or not, but um, I think there's, you know, some people who speculate that maybe some of the viruses and things that we uh, that we see in people um, are not necessarily taken from the outside or they're, they're not like caught as we would say oh i caught a virus mm-hmm. but perhaps at some level or in some instances it's actually already within us but mm-hmm. the environment within our body allows it to be expressed and so it kind of comes back to the possibility that you know uh what was i going to say well yeah estrogen causes the virus to be expressed i mean that's crazy yeah it is so, Elliot, if, if a person isn't able to get natural progesterone, are there ways of increasing it, of the natural uh, production? Yeah, okay. So, right, for progesterone, really, you want to look at minimizing estrogen, first of all, because estrogen suppresses the release of progesterone, okay, if there's too much of it. Um, I think you want adequate cholesterol, of course, um, but you want to be able to convert cholesterol into pregnenolone. So there's a few precursors to progesterone, but to be able to convert cholesterol to progesterone, it needs to be converted to pregnenolone first. Mm -hmm. So the conversion of cholesterol into pregnenolone is dependent on a thyroid hormone. Okay, Uh so we've spoken about this a couple of times, I think. There's some stuff on the forum about it as well. Is that high cholesterol is it? It used to be used as a, as a fairly reliable indicator of poor poor thyroid function. Okay, and you look at the amount of cholesterol, uh, the, the the amount of people with high cholesterol nowadays. Um, basically, I wouldn't be surprised if there's a lot of people with hypothyroid who don't know about it because they don't present with the obvious symptoms. Let's say. So anyway, you want to make sure that you've got adequate thyroid hormone, first of all. Um, There's the fat-soluble nutrients that you need as well. So adequate vitamin A, vitamin E, vitamin D, and vitamin K. Um, And you also want adequate cholesterol. But this is just to produce the progesterone. This is is working off the assumption that you haven't got an excess of estrogen in the first place. So there's a couple things that you can do to minimize your estrogen, okay? And and this is by focusing mainly on the aromatase enzymes. Um, so the aromatase, as we've said before, is the enzyme that converts um, all of the male steroids, or as they're called, male steroids, into estrogen. <clears throat> so what you can use to do this is vitamin E. Um, this has been found to... An, um, antagonize the estrogen receptor sorry that's not an aromatase inhibitor i got a bit caught up there um but aromatase inhibitors include nicotine Hmm. okay so smoking is an aromatase inhibitor so if you smoke that's that's a fairly good thing for estrogen um Yeah, and that's, I think that's also why you see um, people who smoke, um, the more that they smoke, generally they have higher levels of T3 and T4, uh, less levels of reverse T3, uh, lower levels of TSH. So generally people who smoke have higher thyroid function. And Gabby, I think I remember you saying on the smoking article, (laughs) no, on the smoking show that we did um, was that you you saw a couple people who stopped smoking in terms of hypothyroid? 
it was actually worse than that. It was uh, some uh, networking I did with the head of endocrinology of a big hospital in Spain. And he showed me a study. He printed it right there and showed me people who stop smoking will have more hypothyroidism and autoimmune issues within months or, you know, a year or two years after cessation of smoking. He mm, could see wow. it over and over and again in his clinical practice. Wow. Okay. So yeah, it's, I mean, smoking is, is, seems to be one of the things. And when you understand estrogen's effect on thyroid function, then you can see how smoking, um, by, by inhibiting estrogen synthesis, that it, it, it improves thyroid function. Um, another aromatase inhibitor, which is really interesting, is called methylene blue. Uh, so among many other of its functions, like inhibiting nitric oxide synthase and dissociating nitric oxide from the mitochondria, uh, methylene blue seems to also have this anti-estrogenic effect. Um, thirdly, um, niacinamide. So vitamin B3. Um, this is generally really good for the mitochondria in other ways. This uh, precursor is something called NAD positive, which is basically really good for energy production. But this does act as um, an anti-estrogenic factor. Um, another one is um, vitamin B1. So you want vitamin B1. Now, this isn't technically an aromatase inhibitor, I don't think. Um, but what this does is it produces something called pyruvate dehydrogenase. So pyruvate dehydrogenase is the complex, it's the enzyme which converts um, an intermediate called pyruvate into acetyl coenzyme A. It's part of how you take energy from food and turn it into energy, basically. Um, so, yeah, vitamin B1, vitamin B3. Um, <clears throat> Aside from a, actually stops you from absorbing the B vitamins too. Well, that's you right. The pill enough, but there's the pill, de <laughs> the pill depletes you of pretty much every B vitamin, um, and that's you know fairly you know astonishing because I and, don't think that we get enough in our diet anyway. Yeah, it also depletes selenium and magnesium and zinc, I think too. Mm -hmm. <sighs> and just. Gut bacteria. Mm -hmm. um, on top of this, I mean, I would personally aim at focusing on the um, on the main estrogen or aromatase activator, which is polyunsaturated fat metabolism, um, and that I mean that is really I I I would say looking at the abundance of polyunsaturated fats and their tendency to get stored in fat tissue. Um, I think that that can be a real problem for a lot of people. Um, and so, oh, another thing that can be used is aspirin. Um, mm. Aspirin is a, is a potent aromatase inhibitor. It's also a COX inhibitor. So it stops polyunsaturated fats from being, um, from being released from cell membranes to be metabolized. So this can be really helpful in certain situations. Uh, there's a, a lot of debate about aspirin, so I can't necessarily recommend it, but all I can say is that it is an aromatase inhibitor. Um, there's also a couple things that you can do with your diet other than limit the poofers. Um, Increase fat-soluble vitamins. So these are all anti-estrogenic. Um, I just said it's vitamin E, vitamin A, vitamin K, and vitamin D. Um, you want to really get enough of them. So and 
yeah e um so preferably wh- wherever you can source them as long as it's not from you know um non grass fed animals or grain fed animals because you don't want them um secondly the idea is 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 that when you have adequate thyroid function when you or or okay not just thyroid function but when your mitochondria is working properly ideally when your mitochondria is working properly you should not have to activate the hpa axis the hpa axis the stress response is only for times of stress that's what it's designed for it's not there necessarily to balance our lack of energy or our, our defective mitochondria but what happens is is when you've got a defect in in that energy production um pathway you you will inevitably rely on cortisol and adrenaline to to sort of mitigate those effects and so you really want to focus on on maximizing mitochondrial efficiency so this can be one either looking at the thyroid um secondly it's to make sure you have adequate co- co- Q10, and we've spoke about the B vitamins, also magnesium. Most people are magnesium deficient. We've spoke about this on shows before. I mean, like this is no new thing, but you know, making sure that we have adequate levels of magnesium. Um, and then there's also in terms of dietary protein, and this is something really interesting: is that methionine, tryptophan, and cysteine all directly inhibit thyroid function. Um, and so if you look at our sort of modern day diet, it can, the meat that we eat is predominantly muscle meat. And so we tend not to get much other amino acids. So muscle meat is is high in methionine, it's high in cysteine, and it's high in um, tryptophan. And so naturally, in a natural environment or in, a, let's say, a more traditional environment, you would also be confusing consuming other amino acids like um from the collagen and from the connective tissue like glycine proline hydroxyproline you know these are these are very balancing amino acids and what they do is they actually prevent the absorption of the of, of those those anti-thyroid amino acids um but they're, they're also really important and pro-thyroid and so uh really i i would say if you can if you're going to consume muscle meats like i i eat muscle meats all the time what i try to do is take at least a tablespoon of gelatin preferably grass-fed um gelatin or collagen powder with that and um so that that should helpfully you know balance out those amino acids and it should also um prevent the the um the stress response that is caused by the tryptophan and so again this is another really controversial subject but all you have to do is go on to pubmed go onto some research journal and type in serotonin's effect on the uh, hypothalamic pituitary axis serotonin so when you consume tryptophan in muscle meats you will inevitably convert some of it to serotonin mostly in the gut okay if you have excess tryptophan in your diet or you are breaking down too much muscle tissue you'll have this excess serotonin and if you look at how serotonin influences the stress response it directly causes the release of cortisol and adrenaline and that's what you don't want okay so ideally eat meats but eat the collagen with the meat yeah or or can or supplement it with gelatin or something and you know that's that's all i can say about that well, it reminds me of this story about how in certain tribes all the meat 
uh, they went to the dogs, you know, and they ate the rest of the animal. Yeah. The viscera, everything was precious. And the meat, oh, that's the less nutritious part. That's for the dogs. Hmm. Which also reminds me that these all seems like a giant experiment on humanity. Like some people look with contempt, animals that are loaded with estrogen hormones, you know, that are available on the market. But we are it, basically. Mm. So what's alternatives if you don't want to totally ruin your hormonal balance? You don't want to get blood clots and die like uh, a pill has been known to do, causing massive blood clots, deep vein thrombosis, pulmonary embolisms. Uh, if you don't want your libido to suffer, if you don't want to choose the wrong partner, if you don't want to <laughs> stop successfully your with your partner, if you don't want to get acne or weight gain or mood swings. Or depression. Or depression, or if you want to lose little bits of your memory. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, what's the, t- what's the alternative? Abstinence. <laughs> Condoms, right? It, this has occurred to me throughout the show that, like, I I wonder, and you guys can tell me if I'm off base here, but the what cracks me up about birth control being kind of like uh, a flag of, you know, the feminist movement and women taking control is that really all it means is that the man doesn't have to wear a condom. Right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so how is that? I mean, that all that is is better for the man. Uh, I'm sorry to be crass, but you know, it's uh, it doesn't seem like a feminist thing to me. Um, well, well, a lot of women don't like condoms either. I, I suppose. Yeah, I'm sure. Sure. Sorry, I didn't mean to be one-sided. <laughs> but still, there is definitely an abdication of responsibility there. Like it kind of it kind of shifted everything so that suddenly birth control became all the woman's responsibility. It's like the guy doesn't even have to worry about it and whatever. Right. Although they have been working on a men's birth control pill for quite some time and haven't, they, they keep on making, I, I keep reading articles about, Oh, there's been a, a breakthrough in the science or something, but you still don't see it on the market. Yeah. yeah. Every well, there's year also, or so I, something will pop up and it, it never comes to the market, which is probably a good thing. There's also vasectomy. I was just going to say vasectomy, right? I mean, unless I'm wrong, I don't think there's very many dangers associated with that. It can be aside reversed. Aside from the also. surgery itself. Well, there you go. Yeah, men don't like that area being fiddled <laughs> with in a surgical way. It's also kind of crazy, I guess. Yeah. Oh, yeah. sorry, go ahead. No, 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 go ahead. <laughs> Well, I was just going to say that it, although technically it is reversible, it is a rather permanent um, solution, if you want to call it that. It's, yeah. um, you know, it is surgery. So as, as safe as it is, it's kind of like, well, you know, it is still surgery. So, I mean, I, I can see a guy who's maybe like a single guy, maybe not wanting to go and uh, get himself a vasectomy. I mean, maybe if you're in a long-term kind of committed relationship and you know you're not you don't want kids at least at that point um it might be an option but i i, I think on a kind of a day-to-day basis for uh somebody who's maybe not in a most serious relationship is probably not yeah. something we're gonna do yeah i figure 10 years if you're in a relationship for 10 years and you still don't want kids hmm. you know that sounds like a good rule of thumb 
one of the chatters said about tracking your cycles. So there, there are all these apps that you can get for your phone now mm-hmm. where you track your cycle. And there actually is books on the market um, about, you know, doing just that, like um, yeah, awareness of your cycles and ovulation. And, you know, there's some debate about whether a woman actually ovulates more than once a month. And, um, well, there's the natural family planning methods mm-hmm. that you can use where you track your cycle and you have to pay close attention to your cervical mucus and you have to look at it and test it for its viscosity and consistency. Mm-hmm. And you have to do this every day and you can also uh, take your basal body temperature every morning before you uh, get out of bed. And mm-hmm. this can tell you when you're fertile and when your non-fertile periods are. But it requires a lot of tracking and diligence to and put yeah. that in. Yeah, keeping track. That's the Billings technique. It was created mm-hmm. by a religious Catholic man because, you know, supposedly they were not allowed to take the pill. And uh, it is, you know, it's reliable in the sense that it teaches you how to read your body signs. Mm -hmm. And the moment you know that you're ovulating because the secretion is more abundant and transparent and, you know, uh, you count four days after and before that. And that's the high risk season of your cycle. I I, just as a as a bit of a warning, I do know somebody who now has a child. And he and his partner were using that method. It does come down to human error in their situation. Like it was kind of like, she was kind of like, uh-oh. I think I just read, I think I read a calendar wrong or something like that. And yeah, so, so yeah, you, I think uh, it might be effective, but I think it, it really comes down to the individual and how kind of diligent they are with it. If you're, if you're not the kind of person who can keep track of that sort of thing, it might not be the yeah. best uh, this is this is where I feel uh, slightly hypocritical sometimes. Where it's like I, I'm generally, you know, uh, natural treatments. I think they treat a lot of things. That you know, there are some things you need to see a doctor for, sure. You know, but generally, kind of screw the modern medical establishment uh, is the way I think of it. But at the same time, I, I like that idea of like you know plotting the the cycles and using that to to maintain your birth control. But I also then want to have sixty dollars set aside for the morning after pill in case something happens. <laughs> so I'm still like yeah. I'm still a little bit tied in with big pharma there, I suppose. Well, there are herbs, there are herbs that act as a morning after pill. So if you want to completely disassociate yourself from big pharma, oh, there you go. it is possible. But there's also uh, cervical caps and diaphragms and spermicides. Mm -hmm. Uh, Neem oil Mm -hmm. acts as a spermicide. But the thing about uh, cervical caps and diaphragms and IUDs and all that, just for me, it just seems like it would get crowded up there. (laughs) 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 There's too much going on in there. Yeah, I've heard IUDs are effective, and I it's just copper, right? Uh, that's all that is, is a little... Well, they have different types, but they have copper IUDs also. It just uh, makes the uterus inhospitable to an egg, so no right. egg can implant on the uterine wall. But There's those come with their with own too. effects, too. Yeah, yeah. spotting, mm-hmm. bleeding, permanent uh-huh. infertility, and some uh-huh. extreme cases. Yeah. 
There's a book on the market written by Susan Weed. She's an herbalist, and it's called Wise Woman Herbal for the Childbearing Years. And it's not just about birth control, but she basically says that if you do use herbal birth control, it's most effective when it's combined with knowledge of your cycles, like we were mm-hmm. talking about selective abstinence, uh, mental control, and barriers to sperm. And so there are herbs that are very strong that can cause temporary or permanent sterility, and it can also prevent implantation of a fertilized egg or bring on late menstrual flow or entering the uterus if you believe that contraception is taking place. And there's a whole list of them. She has uh, sterility promoters and basically like thistles or they call it jack-in-the-pulpit root or stone seed root. So that would be, you know, for sterility. There's also implantation preventers and, um, you know, wild carrot seed, root and small weed leaves. And then there's menstrual promoters. So if you feel like you're late and you want to promote a menstrual flow, they're they're known as amanagogs. Amanagogs. <laughs> and some of those are, are things like ginger root or tansy leaves, pennyroyal leaves. And, yeah, and one that was kind of shocking to read was vitamin C. And um, we were talking about this before the show. But basically, she says that ascorbic acid is the safest and reportedly most effective amenagogue that can be used after the menstrual flow has failed to appear Women have reported success even after three weeks of being late. Six grams of vitamin C or 6,000 milligrams is the daily dosage needed to abort. So basically taking 500 milligrams every hour for 12 hours. And then there's a big caution sign that says this dosage may produce loose stools. <laughs> so for those of us who, who, who've experimented with vitamin C, I, I found that interesting because I had never read that before about mm-hmm. vitamin C. Yeah, crazy. Yeah, I, I read it. That's, that's why I never recommend mega doses of vitamin C to pregnant women, just in case. Mm-hmm. The orthomolecular yeah. news website, they say that that is not necessarily true, but there is enough anecdotal evidence to, you know, to, to think that it is actually the case. And maybe vitamin C is just acting like a detox of a foreign object. I mean, that's not very maternal to think about, but there you go. <laughs> So vitamin yes. C cures cures everything, even pregnancy. <laughs> <laughs> but just as you wouldn't want to entrust your body to big pharma by taking these hormonal contraceptives, you also don't want to fool around with herbs if you don't really know what you're doing. Mm-hmm. So this yeah, requires yeah. a lot of study. I mean, herbs can alter your hormonal balance as well. So just because they're natural doesn't mean that they can't be unsafe in some yeah. circumstances. Very true. And we yeah, remember and Jonathan's to, experience know. with oregano oil. Yeah. Yeah. That's why the ultimate birth control for me is you just not want a baby and be able to, with your mind, control conception. Why yes. can't we do that? I've heard of that before. Is it like is that true? Because I have heard people say that before. You just say like, no, baby, no baby, no baby, no baby, no baby. Well, it's interesting that Susan Weed does talk about that mental control. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
And not just I one of those, dodging. oh, I don't really want a baby right now. You have to really believe in your heart and soul and womb that you do <laughs> not want a child. <laughs> no vacancy. No vacancy. <laughs> wow. Well, I feel like there's plenty of options, you know, outside of uh, hormonal therapy that mm-hmm. can be employed. So, I mean, and, you know, the hormonal therapy in and of itself not even being that effective. Yeah, women can still get pregnant while on the pill. Yeah. Yeah. Or they can be infertile after extended use of the pill. Yeah, even after they stop. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, I mean, it's it's even been used to, uh, to kill off breast tissue. You know, in treating cancer, you can you can kill off the breast tissue with the estrogen. Wow. Um, nice. <laughs> so I, I'm, I'm curious about the, uh, I guess, the social implications of it, like, or what the um, what the impetus is. You know, is it just a, is it essentially a, a service to self thing? Is it inability to work with your cycles or with the, uh, you know, or I mean, God forbid, just condoms, you know, mm-hmm. to, to do birth control. Like, Well, it's such it a taboo like subject and the whole yeah. idea of sex education. I mean, think about uh, for the ladies on the show, if your sex education class in middle school or high school included those basic ideas of mental control, abstinence, tracking your, knowing your body, learning about alternatives. But instead, here, you're 14, we're going to bust you to get a birth control pill. So mm-hmm. it doesn't require any effort it on doesn't the participant. Require any responsibility. Yeah. They say that, like, the pill is like, oh, it's so, it gives you freedom. Really, kind of just you abdicate your responsibility to get to know your body. It's really empowering. Like, even if I were in a position where I could be getting pregnant, I would want to do the natural family planning method because it gives you an opportunity to learn a lot about your body and your hormones and how your body works and tracking. And I'm sure, like, in the first few months, there's a steep learning curve. But especially if it works and you don't get pregnant like you don't want to, I mean, that would be a really empowering feeling to have. Like you really have yeah. some control over what's going on. Well, I also mm-hmm. feel like, it, it, I mean, what it, you know, it empowers promiscuity. And don't get me wrong. I'm not like a Mennonite or anything. I, I just <laughs> think like that, uh, you know, in certain, in certain contexts, promiscuity can be a can be negative, can be a negative thing for people. I also don't think that you should have your choices monitored and, and, you know, uh, uh, chaperoned all the time and that kind of thing. Like people should be able to make their own choices and do what they want. But there's also like when you kind of cross that threshold into sleeping around at that point, there's a whole bunch of negative side effects. And I think that birth control is tied with that culture in a way, unless maybe I'm just being old fashioned about it. Well, maybe even if you don't sleep around, like we were talking about earlier about the pheromones and how you might choose the wrong partner or if your moods are so out of whack or if you're depressed or if your memory is affected, which the pill does. I mean, how good are you going to be at choosing the right partner, even if you aren't necessarily being promiscuous? Yeah, sure, sure. Yeah. And I honestly wonder, too, the whole 
<clears throat> tracking of the body's uh, kind of natural cycles and everything, if maybe, you know, maybe I just have a very grim view of humanity, but I wonder if it's just too much to ask <laughs> for a lot of people <laughs> out there. You or know what I mean? Like, <laughs> well, there's an yeah. app for that, Doug. Yeah. Oh, well, you know. There's maybe actually several really different simple. apps for that. <laughs> there's a whole variety to choose from. But there's well, if it's, also easy, this... it's easy to use as Facebook, then maybe you know, maybe you could get people doing that. But uh, I think if people are like having to kind of draw graphs and charts and all that sort of thing, like I think it's probably too much to ask for a lot of people. Just wait; well, it's can. not going to be very long before somebody sues the app developer because they got pregnant. Well, that's the thing too. That's I'm sure they have a disclaimer that you have to sign or something like that that says we will not be held liable for yeah. any <laughs> unintended pregnancies. For your child. <laughs> exactly. And we can't overlook the whole population control aspect of this mm. either because uh, Erica yeah. mentioned Margaret Sanger. She was one of the proponents of the pill and she was very into eugenics and population yeah. control. And then you got yeah. Bill well, Gates with his microchip implantable birth control device, which offers 16 years of birth control oh, and 16. it can be controlled by remote. So that in itself is weird, and everybody well, even Bill Gates when he was, is a little off. When he was right, promoting well. it, he even <laughs> said that it would be, or was it was it him? Maybe it was somebody else actually who was saying that these implantable devices could be like used for kind of government mandated um, child uh, monitoring. Making. Yeah. <laughs> no, yeah, but you like actually seek kind of, permission from the government to have a baby. exactly. Yeah, and only the yeah, oh, you can kind of disable the chip, right? So it's kind of like they give yeah. it to you, and you're like 16 or whatever, or even younger probably, mm-hmm. and uh, you know you you have to get permission to have a child and have your your chip deactivated. Wow. Yeah, you're gonna have to get a license to turn it on and then, or to turn it off. You're gonna have to go stand in line at the a username of- and password. <laughs> but on the yeah. other hand, uh. You have to think, like, if they really want to control the population, who's going to work? Where's all the suffering going to come from if there aren't yeah. a lot of people being born all the time? <laughs> exactly. I feel like uh, the whole the population control thing, I get that people are doing that and that people intend uh, mm-hmm. to do that. And please don't be horrified by this. But, we, I mean, we have, you know, what, seven-plus billion people now. If they're doing population control, it's not working. <laughs> no, it's really <laughs> That's all I'm saying. I don't know. But if, I think uh, it is being carried out in certain populations. I mean, well, there was yeah, like I think you're right too. Kenya. That's why I'm yeah. not disagreeing. Or they did the tetanus yeah. shots that was laced with HCG, which made the women infertile. I don't mm-hmm. know. I don't know. I can't really say. I think it's going. No, I on agree. In some and there's, areas. there's super fishy things going on in Africa right now. They're controlling the population. They're controlling birth rates. That kind of stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Well, experimentation with sterility, like just testing the pill in Puerto Rico, you know, mm-hmm. so you have For a controlled women. population and we'll just test it and see what happens. And, oh, those are the side effects, but we won't report them. But I think a lot of that is not just because they're poor brown people, but it's just because uh, they don't have the government regulations to regulate uh, researchers coming in and doing these trial uh, tests on their Poor subjects. Mm-hmm. Right. It's, yeah, because you can get away with it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, and it's just, you know, it's just a larger implementation of that idea. If you want to make like a sweatshirt, 
you just you can farm it out to a factory in China. Any single person can start an LLC and do this and get sweatshirts made in China for like twenty cents a piece, you know. Mm-hmm. So larger companies are just employing that on a on a more massive scale. That idea that you you just go where you can get away with it. Well, with all the information that Elliot shared too, I mean, this mass promotion of birth control over all these years, how is the population not still continuing to be experimented with? So let's see if we give too much estrogen and, you know, basically, essentially what I got out of it was that it accelerates the aging process. So I would consider that experimentation as well. Yeah. 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 A woman I, I tend having to think a lot of big... trouble conceiving. Yeah. Yes. See, that's what's interesting to me is I, I guess personally I need to read about this more because I hear both sides. I hear that a lot of women are having trouble conceiving and that sterility yeah. is on the rise. And I also hear about new babies every single day, for, mm-hmm. you know, within my community and elsewhere. I realize that's just a natural function of, of humanity. Humanity has babies. From what, um, from but what I, don't... I see, <clears throat> for example, in a rural setting, maybe it's younger women who are healthier, have more resilience to deal with all this crap and toxicity in the environment. But a lot of women, you know, especially in countries of shock, doc, uh, shock doctrine countries, um, you know, just relating my experience here in Spain, they are choosing to have babies like near their 40s. Uh, too old, you know. Mm-hmm. They had the pill for all that time, and they are economically stable. It took them a long time, and you know they're really they look old, and they're starting mm-hmm. to have babies. That's impossible. But I've sure. seen also in on uh, infertility, the infertility unit, uh, woman, you know, a young couple in their twenties, and she could not conceive. You know, mm-hmm. she was there for in vitro fertilization. I was like, wow. Or if something happens, they can't keep the baby. I mean, we're seeing very high rates of miscarriage, and it could be, as Elliot was sharing, those environmental toxins, those endocrine disruptors, whether it's your food, the plastic, your your car, your home, all those things, I think, are contributing to it. Yeah, that's true. Uh, Along the same lines, uh, you know, obviously I don't want to say any names, but um, pregnancies that I have heard about – recently, you know, friends or family, acquaintances, that kind of thing, usually involves some kind of complication. There's there's a, sm- there's a small percentage of them that go smoothly, mm-hmm. but a lot of them are involved, mm-hmm. you know, uh, pre- preeclampsia or like a premature birth yeah. or, you know, all these kinds of things. I, that I have seen too, and I've been very scared about it because, you know, when I did medicine, it was in the late 90s, and it was mandatory for me to attend, you know, birth. Birth, um, births because, you know, in a remote town, you're the only one who can attend it. It always went smoothly. You just like, basically, you're just there and she does everything else, her. you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I just, I just catch it. Here, here you go. <laughs> but right now, I will not feel comfortable at all attending a birth, you know. It's uh, messy, uh. complicated, you know. Crazy, mm. and mm. most women choose to have epidural back then. That didn't even exist, even existed, yeah. and uh, I don't know. It's getting crazy. Mm. Yeah. Well, I guess uh, 
did did we did we land on a recommendation for a natural <laughs> form? <laughs> don't use the pill. Yeah, don't use the pill. Yeah, yeah. Don't use the pill. That's the recommendation. Yeah. I or mean, yeah. So there are complications associated with IUDs. Would you still? I mean, is that something that people could do, or they just don't want to do it very often? Well, people can do whatever they want. <laughs> Well, sure. <laughs> no, we have to give hard and fast rules of how people do yeah. life. The more natural, the less invasive, the better. Yeah. Yeah. But I don't know. I'm with you, Jonathan. I'm just like condoms. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I feel like do. that's the simplest approach. I understand that a lot of people don't like it, but, you know, get over it. Always bring a hat to the party. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> You know, you can you can not like that, or you can have a child, and that's a whole thing. Mm-hmm. Having a human being. <laughs> well, not to mention the fact that condoms are pretty much the only thing that'll protect from STDs. Sure. Yeah. So there's that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's a really good point. Yeah. Yeah, we haven't even touched on STDs. Do we? We have another hour or so to talk about STDs. Maybe we can save it for another show because that would be a very good one. We can talk for hours, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, let's. Uh, I guess um, we don't want to uh, take up too much of our listeners' time. Uh, we have a, a pet health segment from Zoya today. Uh, it is about uh, detoxification for pets. Uh, So let's go to that, and then when we come back, we'll wrap up uh, for the day. Hello, and welcome to the Pet Health segment of the Health and Wellness Show. Today I would like to share with you a recording by Dr. Karen Becker about ways to detoxify your pet. We are all constantly bombarded by toxins from various Uh, sources. And while some of us make a good effort to get rid of those toxins, at least periodically, our pets need regular detoxification as well. So listen to this interesting and important recording. Hi, this is Dr. Karen Becker, and it's actually mind-boggling to think about all the different ways our pets are exposed to toxins and chemicals in today's world. There's radiation, environmental pesticides, lawn and home chemicals, EMFs, flame retardants, bisphenol A or BPA, hydrocarbons, heavy metals, and then there's animal hormones and antibiotic residues found in in pet foods or the meats that pet foods are made from. Pets are also exposed through a lot of toxic preservatives in pet foods, and actually mycotoxins that are found in grains that are put into kibble are highly toxic for anything that eats them. And, of course, there's a lot of allergic ingredients that that often go into pet foods as well. Unfiltered drinking water provides a source of toxins when it comes to fluoride and chlorine, as well as other heavy metals that could be present in unfiltered drinking water. And then there are the chemicals in flea and tick preventives, plus vaccines and dewormers and other drugs that are routinely prescribed by veterinarians, such as antibiotics and steroids. If you're wondering if your own pet is carrying a toxin load, sadly, there's no doubt that he is. The truth is that virtually every pet has measurable amounts of chemicals in their bodies because they walk through them, they sleep on them, they breathe them, they drink them, they eat them, and then veterinarians prescribe them, and we also inject them into pets. When your pet's body accumulates too many toxins, it stores them for future elimination, but for many pets, that future opportunity never arrives to actually detoxify, and the toxic load begins to build up in your pet's body and can impede the functioning of vital organ systems. 
Ultimately, toxic overload can interfere with the immune system to the point where cellular abnormalities like tumors and cysts can develop. Other serious diseases may also show up as cells degrade and organ function is impaired. Side effects of an accumulating toxin load over, uh, over time actually have a lot of different symptoms, from skin and organ conditions to behavior problems to endocrine disease as well as autoimmune disease and even many forms of cancer. Your pet's body possesses its own detoxification mechanisms. However, how well they work really depends on the animal's toxin load, his or her age, overall health status, as well as recurrent toxic insults that might occur and its overall vitality or genetics. Your pet's ability to actually clear accumulated toxins is based on the overall functioning of detoxification pathways or mechanisms. If those pathways aren't working as they should, detoxification systems become stressed or completely overwhelmed. Here are 10 ways that you can absolutely assist your pet's uh, detoxification mechanisms to help function optimally. Number one, really evaluate the quality of your pet's diet. This is one of the very best things you can do to improve the overall well-being and longevity of your pet. If you're feeding a processed diet, which means a kibble, or in most kibble is extruded, or dry food, your pet is actually getting a dose of chemical additives and carcinogenic byproducts like heterocyclic amines and acrylamides with every bite. I recommend that you switch to a clean, balanced, fresh food diet. I also recommend that you rotate protein sources and strictly limit or eliminate grains in the diet. Remember that grain-free kibble um, has just as many synthetic nutrients and usually actually a higher glycemic index than regular kibble. So pets eating grain-free food are really no further ahead when it comes to um, dietary stress. Number two, provide clean, pure, high-quality drinking water. Your pet's drinking water shouldn't contain fluoride, chlorine, heavy metals, or other contaminants. Sadly, if you're offering household tap water, it probably contains enough toxic minerals, metals, chemicals, and other unhealthy substances to damage you and your pet's health long-term. So do something to filter your pet's water and the water that you're consuming as well. Number three, improve your pet's indoor air quality. Forbid smoking in your home and use only non-toxic cleaning products. Consider investing in an air purifier to control dust mites and uh, other off-gases that could be occurring from your furniture. Avoid polluting your pet's indoor air quality with perfumes, air fresheners, and scented plug-ins or dryer sheets. These products are heavily laden with chemicals and are known to cause or worsen respiratory conditions like asthma in both people and pets. Toxins in the air also come from the off-gassing of chemicals from new synthetic household items like flooring, carpeting, furniture, and drapes, but also pet beds. Unless you are providing an organic chemical-free pet bed that specifically says that it's all natural fibers, that it hasn't been treated, you should assume that it has been treated with flame retardants. Number four, make sure that your pet gets regular exercise. Regular exercise provides your pet with countless benefits, including helping the body's detoxification efforts. Physical movement promotes regular elimination, which helps move waste from the body in the form of urine and feces. Exercise also stimulates blood circulation and and the lymphatic system, so toxins are moved efficiently to the liver and kidneys for processing. Physical activity also improves respiration and helps your pet eliminate mucus from the respiratory tract. Number five, minimize exposure to outdoor pollutants and chemicals. Try to keep your pet away from outdoor areas with heavily laden pesticides, herbicides, or fertilizers. 
If your dog likes to eat grass or other outdoor greenery, make sure that she's not grazing where chemicals have been sprayed. And um, if your dog is really craving grass or greenery, provide salads or I recommend uh, organic sunflower sprouts in her diet to help reduce the desire to want to forage outside if you can't get away from outdoor chemicals. If you have an indoor cat, you can consider growing wheatgrass to, sat- to, to satisfy your kitty's need to nibble as well. So providing something in their diet to meet what they need versus having them forage outside could be beneficial depending on your chemical load. If you're not sure what your pet may have been exposed to or you suspect something outside is causing skin irritation, then do the common sense thing and just rinse your pet off. You can do a simple foot soak with your dog when you bring her in from outside. So if you're walking in public parks where you know that there's been chemicals applied, then you're just doing a very basic foot rinse or foot soak when you get home can do a dramatic job at reducing the overall chemical burden for dogs that have exposure outside. Number six, keep veterinary drugs, including unnecessary vaccines, to an absolute minimum. Don't subject your pet to unnecessary yearly revaccinations or unnecessary drugs of any kind, including the two most overprescribed drugs in veterinary medicine, antibiotics and steroids. Vets oftentimes send clients home with these two options because they don't know what else to do because we weren't taught in vet school actually how to address the root cause of disease. So they're giving you medications to try and pacify the symptoms. And most veterinarians aren't trained with a whole variety of other alternative means of treating animals, so they don't have enough tools in their toolbox to be able to help you effectively long term. So you get on this crazy cycle of antibiotics and steroids and antibiotics and steroids, especially for itchy dogs or dogs that have recurrent skin issues. My recommendation is that you only accept antibiotics if your veterinarian can demonstrate that it's the correct choice for the correctly identified bacteria that's dramatically reducing your pet's overall quality of life. I don't recommend that you allow your veterinarian to guess at what antibiotic may or may not work. It's just poor medicine and a bad idea. I also recommend that you don't accept uh, annual deworming just because. If your dog or cat has been identified with specific parasites, your vet may recommend a dewormer, obviously, but automatically providing chemicals either once a month via a heartworm prevention that may be unnecessary or twice a year if your vet says, oh, just deworm, just use a general dewormer. Those are great ways that you can just say no, reduce your pet's chemical burden to what's absolutely necessary and improve their overall detoxification mechanisms. Use chemical pest and parasite preventives only when absolutely necessary and for the minimum amount of time necessary to protect your pet. You can absolutely find all sorts of great safe and natural alternatives to monthly chemical preventives. Very few areas in the U.S. actually have flea and tick or heartworm problems year-round. So you can ask your veterinarian or do research yourself and learn how what the minimum number of doses needed to effectively protect your dog during heartworm season. Number seven. Brush and bathe your pet regularly. Your cat or dog eliminates toxins through his skin, and regularly brushing or combing will remove loose fur and debris, as well as help his or her skin breathe via exfoliation. Brushing also helps remove toxic residues from your pet's coat, which means he won't be licking them off uh, when he grooms. Don't hesitate to bathe your dog regularly, especially if there is chemical exposure or they have irritated skin. Bathing washes away allergens and environmental toxins, along with any chemical exposure or foreign molecules that may have been accumulating on your dog with those outdoor walks. Make sure, obviously, that you're using an all-natural, non-toxic shampoo and conditioner specifically designed for pets. Number eight, support your pet's liver function. The liver is the primary organ of pet detoxification, and there are many herbs that assist in liver function and detoxification, including burdock root, dandelion root, licorice, Oregon grape root, 
yellow dock, and milk thistle. Now, milk thistle actually not only helps detoxify the liver, but it's actually been proven to help stimulate cellular regeneration of the liver, which is awesome. It can help the liver regrow. Another vital liver detoxifier you can consider is SAMe. Number nine, support your pet's kidneys. Make sure your pet is getting plenty of clean, pure water each day, both in her diet as well as at the water bowl. Toxins that travel through the kidneys can become highly concentrated in chronically dehydrated pets and can damage the tiny structures in the kidneys that allow the kidneys to adequately filter. Also, mineral particles can congeal when the urine is highly concentrating, which means when pets aren't getting enough water, which can result in crystals or stones that can cause blockages, irritation, or urinary tract infection. Herbs that help support kidney detoxification include cranberry, corn silk, and marshmallow. Number 10, support your pet's lymphatic and immune system. The lymph and immune systems are also toxin removal systems in your pet's body. Red clover and cleavers help your pet's lymphatic system to remove toxins from the tissues of the body. Garlic and turmeric, or curcumin, help support the immune function of your pet. Chlorella is also a great super green food that detoxifies both of these organ systems. The goal of natural detoxification agents is to support and promote healthy functioning of your pet's toxin removal systems, including the liver, kidneys, lymphatic system, and the immune system. I recommend that you talk with your holistic veterinarian about what detoxifiers are appropriate for your pet's individual needs and in what doses. Some additional detoxifiers that many holistic veterinarians may recommend to you include phosphatidylserine, which is critical for a detoxification process known as methylation. Pets' bodies are wired with very potent hormones, such as adrenaline and cortisol. And when needed for emergencies, these hormones are critical. But as soon as um, the emergency is done, these hormones can be very damaging if they stay in your pet system for a long period of time. The faster that your pet's body can get rid of these hormones, once they're no longer needed, the less damage that's going to happen. This process of getting rid of hormones is called methylation. And that's something that, you, that may be needed if your pet is high-strung or stressed. Resveratrol is the active ingredient in the plant known as Japanese knotweed, and resveratrol actually reduces liver enzyme elevations by reducing lipid peroxidation in the liver. It helps the liver clean house by flushing accumulations of fat so that this organ can function optimally. The catechins found in green tea also dramatically modify cancer-causing molecules that damage cellular DNA. Inactivation and excretion of carcinogens is a big part of keeping your pet's body cancer-free for a lifetime. And green tea extract, obviously it's decaffeinated, can be very beneficial for your pets. Superoxide dismutase, which is also called SOD, is a potent enzyme responsible for the removal of free radicals from your pet's body, which helps your pet's lymphatic system to work optimally. Unfortunately, toxins are almost unavoidable for our pets, but at least we have a means of helping them cope. If your pet is regularly exposed to toxins, such as monthly heartworm, flea, and tick preventives, I recommend that you provide your pet with a week of detoxification after those chemicals are fed or applied. If your pet has seasonal exposure to toxins, say in the warmer months of the year, your housing complex routinely sprays the lawns, then offering seasonal detoxification makes sense. Maybe you would provide something for your pet uh, a week or 10 days after the chemicals have been sprayed. You would uh, monthly provide detoxification for your dog if he's out in that environment. If your pet has had an acute episode of a toxic exposure, perhaps she ate a toxic plant or recently has undergone antibiotic therapy or steroid therapy, then I recommend a focused short-term detoxification protocol. 
Most importantly, I think we all need to recognize that almost all of our pets benefit from a thoughtful detox program, depending on their age, lifestyle, diet, and chemical exposure. Talk with your integrative veterinarian about what type of protocol, the dose, and the duration is best for your pet. All right, thank you, Zoya. That was some great information. Uh, should we say the obligatory thing about the goats? Yes. Yeah. I was bl- I was blanking. Out. There, those are some detoxified goats. Yeah. There you go. <laughs> that was the best I could come up with. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, anyhow, uh. Yeah, that's our show for today. I guess uh, just to wrap up, you know, we, we had some good information there on uh, birth control and on uh, what you can do uh, and the dangers of uh, hormonal therapy. Um, mm-hmm. So I guess uh, any further questions, uh, you can basically just do some searching on that. Uh, you can look up uh, Ray Pete, uh, where he talks about some of the mitochondrial damage uh, that, that Elliot mentioned. Um, so I don't know. Do you guys have anything else to add? Nope. Nope. Okay. Nope. <laughs> uh, well, thank you. Thank you everybody for tuning in and, uh, to our chat participants for, uh, for, for tuning in there. Uh, be sure to tune into the, uh, SOT radio show on Sunday at noon Eastern time. Go to radio.sot.net, uh, in the airtime will show in your local time zone. Uh, so be sure to check that out on Sunday. Uh, so everybody have a great weekend, and we will be back next week. Okay. See you guys. Bye. Bye, everybody. Bye. Bye. Bye.